I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 86th episode of Talking Golf History, in part two of a special Open Championship production celebrating the playing of the 150th Open Championship at St. Andrews. Our show today is the second half of a two-part podcast with one of the world's greatest living golf historians, Roger McStravick of St. Andrews. Today, we dive into part two of A Golf Historian's Guide to St. Andrews. Listen in as Roger and I take a little stroll down the streets of St. Andrews and talk about all of the hidden history behind this beautiful town. Whether you are listening to the show on your way to the open or years later on your way to play the old course, Sit back and enjoy these wonderful tales of golf history. We start off with a minor rewind to hear Roger talk about the ghosts of St. Andrews. Let's jump in where we left off. Do, do you hear people talking today of ghosts at St. Andrews out of curiosity? Yeah, yeah. You know, and there's, there's, there's ghost tours, you know, and um, I and, know and Linskill was particularly uh, obsessed about the ghosts of St. Andrews, you know, uh, and there's ghosts in the, the cathedral towers. Yeah. If ever there were a place to have ghosts, it would be St. Andrews. Don't you think? Exactly, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, between, there's just so much crazy history in yeah. that little town. And, 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 and the St. Regulus tower, you know, the tower and the cathedral, you know, that's supposed to, be haunted as well so sometimes people have said they've gone down and they've seen somebody dressed as a monk you know it could be a student yeah you know? <laughs> that's right <laughs> who, who hadn't got home from the night before or that's something. right lost at a monk party um but um uh but it is uh, it, it is it is fantastic you know it really is and, and lynn skills has a book on his ghost stories as well i think I'll have to check that out. So we head down South Street, and as it comes to an end, we come upon those ruins we spoke about at the St. Andrews Cathedral. I guess this might be a, as good a time as any. How did St. Andrews come upon its name, Roger? There's, there's two um, theories, and they have to be theories because there's no smoking gun. Um, so the first theory um, was that a Greek monk um had a vision from God um tell him to, to take the bones of St Andrew and take him to the ends of the earth and um and he initially declined and then God came to him in another vision and said you know I, I wasn't kind of asking you know, <laughs> it's of, like where the uh, sidewalk ends is is essentially St Andrews is that what you're telling me yeah. <laughs> And, the uh, ends of the earth. Roger, so you live in the ends of the earth, I hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, 
so yeah so and then he he comes to comes in and crashes in the Bay of St Andrews and and then you know and that's supposed to be in the 4th century but that story was written in the 12th century and doesn't involve anybody real so so the the current thinking you know is that um because it involves real people and real situations um was that uh, there was a bishop aka an english bishop who was based in hexham and in in Northumberland and um he had been traveling with his uh his mentor bishop wilfred and they had the authenticated bones of st andrew and they came back to hexham and created a church there to st andrew but they created a church unlike anything that else had been seen. It was instead of being um, like the Celtic Christian churches, it was filled with choirs and libraries, and it was it was like a, 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 a it, it, it was spiritual, you know, and pretty much similar to the churches we have today. But in the eighth century, this did not exist. So Ungus, who was the king of the Picts at the time, um, um, basically asked Akas, Aka to come to St. Andrews. And he did, and he came with some of the bones of St. Andrew, and that and this place was called Kilrymont until that point. And then at some point it becomes St. Andrews. And it used to be St. Andrew apostrophe S. Oh, St. Andrews. Okay, Sorry, yeah. St. Andrews. Um, but eventually the apostrophe disappeared. So um, St. Andrews derives itself from the church. Is that fair? Yeah. Or the absolutely. cathedral. And then... What was it called prior, or was there so it, a town? So it was Kilrymont. So oh, it was Kilrymont. Okay. It used to be like the Culdees was a form of Christianity, you know, and they had a church. Um, it was called Saint Maria de Roop. I'm just um, Saint Mary of the Rock. Maybe de la Roop. Um, um, and that was, do you, do you know, where the pier is today, on you know, the East Sands. So there used to be a, a land a little bit of land there and they built the first church first christian church on that but that got washed away and then the second church was just outside where they eventually built the cathedral but you'll still see the ruins of it of the samaria and the rock um just there you know so so they were there before you know before um uh, the bones of saint andrew and you know so um they were just christian you know, pretty much following the Irish tradition, you know, of sort of St. Columba. Um, I, so, yeah, but, but St. Andrews is St. Andrews because of the bones of the apostle, you know, and people did come for hundreds and hundreds of years thinking, you know, it was... Um, a place of worship and, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and they'd bathe in the waters, you know, God, if you bathe in the waters, you certainly get closer to God because the first... Well, just don't be. float. Because we know what we would do with the people who float in the in the water. <laughs> if you can all go in the water and drown, we'll yeah. know you're not witches. The, the water is 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 ice cold. Honestly, you know, and beautiful warm sum, summer's day, and you walk in and, and you feel like you've tiptoed into the Arctic. You know, right, just, right. You know, but not the, not to yeah. flip back to old Tom, but I mean those stories of him just going out and taking a bath out on the sea. Yeah. I mean, tough as nails they were back then. 
Absolutely. And that was part of his tradition, you know. But, um, and, uh, um, uh, and, and also his faith for him was, was really strong, you know. Um, he, he would um, bizarrely seem to get closer to God, you know, towards the end of his life. You know, um, he, uh, you know he, he read his Bible, he had his routine and he read his Bible always at the end of the night, you know, um, and he became a church elder. And bizarrely, for all the pain that he went through, because he didn't just lose Tommy at 24, um, he also lost a, a son before that at four years old. Yeah. He outlived yeah. so many of his family. I mean, it's... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A beautiful life, but also a hard one. It was. It was brutal. And if anybody had reasons to turn against God, it would have been Tom Morris, you know, for, for all of the pain that he went through. But it seemed to make him... him uh, stronger and became a church elder and um, certainly one of the moments he was most proud of was representing the church at the, the General Assembly you know, at the Synod so um, um, so yeah, so he, he definitely was a, a man of faith, you know um, um, and, and not seemingly um, distracted by you know, superstition and, you know, witches <laughs> And witches. I like how we keep going back to that. It's yeah, perfect. So, <laughs> that's right. The witches of St. Andrews. She's a witch. Love it. Um, so, you know, we talked about how the cathedral took 150 years to build, took about a day to destroy. What most golfers gravitate to in this area is, is the graveyard, uh, the tombstones, which include a who's who of St. Andrews. Can you go over, you know, if you if you're stopping by this site, some of the predominant burial grounds, grave sites, should they look into? I mean, obviously we're going to touch upon young Tom Morris and old Tom Morris, but who beyond that? If we're looking at, you know, the the town elders or the the founders of the town, the people who saved the town, what what tombstones would you be looking at? So the first one would be Alan Robertson's, and that's easy to find because it's an obelisk. Yeah, you know, it's an obelisk. with his face on it. It's really beautiful. Yeah, and, and, and luckily I managed to track down a, a, a very old photograph of it, and, and all that writing on it uh, is crystal clear. It's like brand new, you know, so it's just wonderful to see. And then, what, five pieces, you know, you know Maybe ten, maybe ten yards away. There's Jimmy Anderson's. Yeah, right? and talk about three the times. the yeah three time Open champion in a row, three in a row. Absolutely, you know, living. You know, we started with, you know, uh, of that that sort of almost like movie set of the RNA, then Alan Robertson's house, then Tom Morris's house, and Tommy's the reason why we have the Claret Jug. Their next door neighbor was Jimmy Anderson, who won the trophy three times. So in that small space, you have the reason for the Open and, you know, 11 wins. In that, <laughs> 11 know. Open champions, right? That's amazing. Yeah, All in a couple doors. Yeah. And so um, so we, we're with Jamie's. And then as you um, – and then just from Jamie's, there's Cathcart uh, – Charles and Cathcart Dempster um, grave. And they were the ones who um, – as, as the whole rabbit war story of St. Andrews. Which when, we'll get into here in a bit, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, um, and so they're there, you know, as well. Um, uh, and then 
on the right hand side, so I'm just thinking you know, on the right hand side is Playfair, so Hugh Lyon Playfair's uh, headstone, which is wonderful. The man who saved St Andrews, you know. Do you think uh, is he the most? It's hard to put this moniker on him, but is he the most important figure in St Andrews history? I mean, do we have all these great stories? Do we have the home of golf? If not for Playfair, no, no, I, I think absolutely. It is Playfair, you know, um, without Playfair, people were broken. You have to understand, people were broken and, and lacked, um, you know, it, it seems that they lacked any positivity and any, that this rundown medieval town could be anything. I mean, he said, this is going to be the metropolis of golf. The thought he had, it's, you know, eaten the wrong mushroom, you know, and, um, um, and he did, he created this, he created this middle class town. You know, from nowhere. Um, so he absolutely saved St. Andrews. What, what time period are we talking about, Roger? So he came back in eighteen sort of eighteen twenties. You know, so so the town is an absolute mess. Um, they're playing. The first hole hasn't been created. First hole is beach, um, and they're playing. You know, the reverse rooting. You know, effectively playing the back nine twice. You know, that's how narrow the course is, but. But when he comes back, the land reclamation work starts on the. the is that is that him? Is that Playfair? I mean, he expanding essentially the course and what did they bury in the beach to build the the beachhead? Was it wreckages of boats? I can't remember what I read so, there. So there's two there's two things. So so what they did because the town is a shambles. So if you imagine North Street today, it all it is is a dirt track. Um, and piles of dung and rubbish strewn across the streets. So it's an absolute hovel, you know. Um, um, and he cleaned all out of the, all of that away, and then started lots and lots of building work. You know, he came back a very wealthy man and paid for lots of the work himself. But the, the, when they dug up foundations, they took all that rubble and dumped it on the East Sands Beach, and then leveled it off. And that's why the first hole is billiard table. That's why all the pros try to play up the first, you know, on the 18th, because they'll get a flat lie. Rather, if you play up the 18th forever, you're going to be either one foot up, you know, um, one foot down, you know. So, um, and so can we attribute is, all of that to Playfair? Yes, that land's absolutely. not not even there if if not for Playfair. He, he he was a man who, and he became the town provost, and he he would get things done, and I really admire that because we live in an age where. You know, if if you try to do the slightest thing, you know, th there's going to be an army just trying to stop you, you know, where Playfair just got things done, you know. And sometimes um, um, he got criticized because he, he sort of anglified some of the um, of the street names, you know, um, like Union Street used to be called Foul Waste Lane, which I don't think um, too many people would have a problem with. But lots of the old Scottish words were lost, um, you know, when he uh, turned his revolution. And it was a revolution. You know, if you think a, a completely a starveling village um, became this beautiful middle class town, you know, um, with beautiful, nice places to stay and, and um, boulevards for people to walk on. You know, that, that, that whole area around the 18th Green um, was Playfair. You know, the path behind the 18th Green you know, that, that was a promenade created so people could, ladies could walk and with their parasols, 
you know. And did did the, he see that? Did he truly see that the the golf course was going to be the big draw for St Andrews? Did he have that vision? He, he definitely had the vision that um, it could be a, a truly special place. You know, because why would he bother if not? You know, and he 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 wanted it not just a place to live, also a place to visit as well, you know. And it, it is phenomenal to think of what he achieved, you know, the straight lines that he achieved. Um, and well, the, and the town no longer smells like dung. We can say that's definitely Playfair. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's, that's mostly true, yeah. <laughs> right? What is yeah. that foul smell? It's the old gray tune. <laughs> You know, it, 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 and it is beautiful, you know, and obviously I'm Northern Irish, so I, I've lived here for 20 odd years. And um, but but I, I absolutely love the place and I love the place not only because of Tom Morris and, you know, Alan Robertson and stuff, but just the history of it. You know, almost on every street, there's something has happened, be it, be it a witch. Yeah, <laughs> I had to come back to that. <laughs> we are always going to come back to that. There will never be a trip to St. Andrews where I don't walk up that hill ever again. Ever, ever, ever again. Yeah. So hopefully we're trying to, we're looking at plaques as well because because there's nothing there that says that, you know, when I, when I wrote the, the Road War papers, you know, my uh, my last sort of book, um, the, the uh, people in the 1800s were being cross-examined in court and they refer to this, that area as Witch's Hill and Witch's Lake. You know, it was common parlance. To, that's the name they called it, you know. I'd love to see that name maybe returned, you know. It's amazing, amazing. Um, so before we leave the uh, the cemetery here, I mean, it bears mentioning, of course, the beautiful monument of young Tom Morris, which was donated by not only the townsfolk, but from many of the major clubs across Scotland, which is a truly remarkable achievement. It is, you know, I think 60 societies came together to form that monument. And what the monument is, is is actually taken from a photograph. There's a photograph of Tom and Tommy, you know, and Tom's standing beside Tommy and Tommy's addressing the ball. And what they've done to create the statue is use Tommy's likeness from that photograph. And then when you see the two side by side, it's almost heartbreaking, you know, one, one a picture of utter pride and, you know, between father and son, you know, of Tommy and fantastic. And the next one, you know, it's a headstone, you know, so, um, yeah, it's poignant, but it is taken from that photograph. Yeah. So let's walk back to the old course, which is a swift mile and a half walk away and a good stretch of the legs. As we look over these grand links, we can think back of the many battles that have occurred here, and not all those battles were done with clubs in hand. Before we jump into these battles, how do you think the golf course came? I know. How do you think golf came to St. Andrews? That's probably the best way to put it. Yeah, wherever there was money, you know, there was golf, you know, in, in the 14, 1500s. Um, and. It was a gentleman's sport, and gentlemen wanted to do what gentlemen do, you know. And St Andrews was perfect for that because it had the the hard um, sandy links away from prying eyes as well. And so, so it's a natural spot 
for golf, you know, um, and and you couldn't grow anything on it anyway, so you weren't losing any sort of agriculture, you know, um, just barren, so right? Just barren land. It was absolutely, but perfect, you know, which is why, like most of the the agricultural community played their golf and the, during winter time when there was there was no harvesting to be done, you know. Because in St Andrews, the ball would just keep rolling, you know, and that's the joy of St Andrews. If you get a, a nice day in October with clear skies, the ball will run a mile, you know. So, um, um, so it, it just is perfect for golf. The uh, the Linksland was originally owned by the town of St Andrews. It was for centuries, um, but it set off a major battle, not necessarily for the land, but against a hopping mammal. Perhaps you can elaborate on the rabbit wars of St. Andrews, which is a delightful little story. <laughs> well, um, we, we touched upon Cathcart and Carl Charles Dempster. Um, uh, they effectively, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, and because we could spend about three episodes on this one story alone. So, effectively, they, 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 owned, they, they bought the links from the town council, um, and they allowed uh, a farmer to keep a uh, rabbit farm on the links but the problem with that is that the rabbits dig holes and created over a thousand holes on the golf course which is kind of difficult to hit your ball down the middle and you know and you can't find your ball and yeah obviously it went into ball. another hole yeah, <laughs> right <exactly. laughs> so it was uh, unfortunate and and um created a lot of trouble between the dempsters um who have done a lot of good things in st andrews um uh, but on this one issue, uh, it, it was unfortunate, um, and 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 the locals, you know, the course was being destroyed, um, and and it was known as the rabbit war, you know, because people were helping themselves to rabbits, you know, for food, um, or, um, or killing them, you know, because of the destruction that was happening, and and uh, on the reverse side, Dempster's men were, you know, um, beating up people who they thought were stealing their rabbits, you know, from the farm, you know. So it, it, it was, um, it was, you know, it was a long episode. It was 20 years, you know. And in the, um, in my next book, um, I'm going to be able to give some transcriptions from the court case. So Yeah, because this went to court. I think a lot of people, yeah, I mean, outside of just, the poor Dempsters with this rabbit farm and probably sullying their name a little bit because the rabbits yeah. got out of control and then probably the golfers got out of control and you know the whole thing just went to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, it, it truly did. But it, it's always been painted black and white. But it, you know, like all things in life, it's not as simplistic as that because the Dempsters did offer to repair the course and make good any damage that's been done, and that story is never quite told. Um, but. Um, but eventually, it all came, it all came to an end when, uh, when the cheap family uh, bought the links, like eighteen twenty one, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, and how did how did uh, James Cheap and his family? How did they, how did they repair that issue of the rabbit wars? I, did they just remove the rabbits? No, and there was a period where he maintained the status quo. But, um, but effectively, effectively, yes, is is the short answer. You know, um, uh, peace was restored when James Cheap took over the links. You know, and uh, 
Um, and I, I love I love the whole story of the Jeep family and 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 their influence on St Andrews. And they're still here today. My my son he's my son is in class with one of the Jeeps. You know, so it's it's all St Andrews. If it's, if you're living here, it's living history. You know, I, I I give a talk in front of some school kids and and uh, and one put his hand up and I was doing the little Tommy Morris book, you know, the children's book, and one child put his hand up and said. Oh, oh! Um, my my great grandfather w- was a golfer, and I, I was thinking, oh, he plays golf. Well, that's very good. That's good, you know. And he goes, yeah, I, his name is Willie Octorloney. Oh, wow! Like, oh, okay. Yes, he did play golf. <laughs> rather good. Yeah. Wow. Well done, you. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, that just has to be, just inspires awe, doesn't it? When you come across a story like that, yeah, I, I do feel like I'm on a movie set. I, I genuinely do. You know, and sometimes you are, to be quite frank. I, <laughs> they do yeah, film movies yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it, it is. Uh, it is it's a wonderful place. Um, but come back to the rabbit war. Sorry. Um, a, so and, and then peace did did come back to Sanders one once. Uh, I once cheap took over, you know, um, but but for those twenty years, it must have been horrid in St Andrews, you know, because of course you've been destroyed and stuff, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was the Rabbit Wars. So cheap owns and cheap and his family owned the the links until eighteen ninety four. What what happened in eighteen ninety four? So it, it's kind of complicated. Because the RNA were going to buy the links, and then they bought the links, and then the t- town council bought it off them, you know, for the same price. So there was no profiteering or anything. Like right, that. but did the RNA was that the intention, or was the RNA's intention say, you know, we're going to buy the links and take care of it, and then the town council was kind of like, whoa, 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 this should be a public institution, and because of that, the RNA, you know, sold them the land with no profit. Was that that's, that that's that's exactly it. So it's really returning the land to yeah. St. Andrews because yeah. prior to these two families, it was owned by the city or owned by the it, town. Yeah, and it'd been owned by the town. You know, my, my research goes back to 732, you know. So so it is common land. It's public common land. And the feeling in town today is that it's still, and it is, common land. You know, it's still, you know, owned by the people. You know, so um, uh, people are very passionate about it and very passionate about, um, you know, how the Lynx is looked after, which which I'm sure makes the St. Andrews Lynx Trust life hell. Oh, I can it's only imagine. I mean, I, I, I'm on a committee for my golf club and, you know, it's it's not the old course. You know, yeah, I can't even fathom what that's like. Yeah, because you, you're dealing with a million different opinions. And, uh, and I, I think... That, I think they do a, a wonderful job. I really do. Uh, course is looking fantastic, and it's, it's going to be amazing open. And uh, um, I, so yeah, so um, yeah, it'll be special. So before we move on from uh, the sale, there are some ominous stones that sit upon the links. They're probably easy to ignore if you're playing the course, uh, but these stones actually are, in a way, a treasure map. What are these massive stones that sit upon the links, and where can they be spotted? So they are the original boundary 
of the links. So when you see them, you go, well, what are they doing here? That was actually, and they were put down by James Cheek. Um, and that shows you how narrow the original course was, you know, and you'll find them when you walk down, you walk down a seven or, um, you know, you'll see them. You're thinking, what's this little tombstone doing? But, but now they've covered them in um, artificial grass so that they, they look like they've got a little head. They blend stone. in. Yes, yes. I just think that's fat. They're like a treasure map. It's like the original course is like the boundary from the sale from cheap to the RNA to the town is literally represented with these March stones. Absolutely. I just, Absolutely. I, do you know how many there are by chance? I, I don't know how many are still remaining. Yeah. I hope they're never removed. I just think that is one of the cool little time capsules that you can find Completely. in St. Andrews. It, they are brilliant, you know, unless your ball hits it and it kicks it off. And well, the, you know, there's that. <laughs> Rub of the green and all, right? Rub of the green. <laughs> so we cannot end this podcast without at least talking a little bit about the Open Championship. Uh, I'm pretty sure they'd throw us in a pond and see if we float and then uh, set us ablaze if we didn't. Um, I thought it'd be, it might be too easy to talk about the first Open at St. Andrews, which we touched upon in 1873 with the uh, local Tom Kidd winning in horde weather. weather. Um, but I thought we might jump into the fun events of the 1876 Open, which was the second Open held at St. Andrews. Care to share this amazing story with our audience? Because it, it really is... It's fascinating and a little bit sad when you think about it. So in, in 1876, um, the committee um, said, before the tournament said, that one of the rules for the week would be that you're not allowed to play onto the 17th green um, if someone is on the green. So, um, so the tournament... Um, Was it just for that hole, Roger, by the way? Do, do we yeah, know what they were thinking? Why the 17th, the road hole, of course, but why why the 17th more so than, you know, any of the other greens? Do we know this? Uh, no, is the honest answer. Um, um, and it might have been I mean, a local wide rule, um, but it was a rule, as far as I know, it was just a rule for that week. Um, and... Um, um, and I think it was just about etiquette of the game, you know, let people put out before you start playing onto the green, you know. And uh, um, so, um, um, so at the end of the tournament, Bob Martin uh, is the is the leading scorer, um, and Davy Strath um, had a few accidents on the way. He was doing well, and then. Um, his golf ball hit somebody on the head um, and that shocked him a bit and he ended up dropping a shot or two and then on the 17th when somebody was putting out he played onto the green didn't gain any advantage just played onto the green while they were playing and and then finished tied with Bob Martin but the, the Bob Martin supporters said well this is not fair he should be penalised for that even though the rules didn't stipulate that there would be a penalty so the RNS said, okay, we'll have your playoff. We can't have a meeting about it until following the weekend, so we'll meet on Monday and discuss. 
Um, and D.B. Strauss said, well, what's the point? What's the point of having a playoff? If you're going to penalise me, then, then Bob Martin has won, you know. And um, so Bob Martin ended up just uh, walking the course and winning the championship. Um, and D.B. Strauss, to be fair, he had a point. But at the same time, it was his last chance to win the Open. Obviously, he didn't know it at the time. He was yeah. cock of the green. Him and he was, what, middle yeah, 20s? Wood. Middle 20s at the time? Yeah, and, and he and Tommy were, were on tour, you know, previously had been on tours, you know, before Tommy's death. And, you know, he, he was, you know, in his own mind, and, and um, the hotshot, you know. Um, so he probably thought he had many more chances. But... The Strath family had a, a terrible problem with TB, and lots of them were were died because of you know tuberculosis, and um, and sadly, uh, DV went the same way you know in two years you know, um, so it was it was it yeah it, it was unfortunate and understandable, but at the same time, he just worse he had played the playoff. Right, you know? so he he basically qualified for the playoff. The tournament committee said, hey, you may have this penalty, which may disqualify you, but you better play the playoff or you aren't the open champion. And he just basically said, this isn't right. No, thank you. He turned yeah. down the right to be the open champion, essentially. Yeah. You know, which, you know, I, I think if it was Tommy Morris. Tommy Morris was an educated guy and, and would have had a level head and said, okay, well, let's just play the game and see what happens, you know, because the, the bigger would be to win the Open Championship, the bigger goal. I, I don't I, I don't get the impression that the Strass were a very educated family, you know. Lots of these golfers, be it Jimmy Anderson, you know, even Alan Robertson, that come from working class stock, and, and the working classes didn't get much of an education, you know. I think um, Davey, if, if, you know, if he had a, a more sound head on his shoulders, um, and not wanted to make a tiny point, you know. He, he would have played it. You know, I, I just, I just think, uh, um, if, if if Tommy would have been there, he would have him right. He would have said, "What do you got to lose?" Yeah, yeah, yeah it's tragic. And, and so, the other, the other tidbit that I love about this open, I think this was also the case in 1873, is that we have these amazing golfers out there um, that are that are playing for the Open Championship, the most important tournament in the entire world of golf, and they're sharing the golf course with members <laughs> that are just <laughs> playing golf out there. Yeah. Like there's there's Roger and Connor going to show up for the 150th Open and, and be like, hey, guys, we need to finish. Can you keep it down a little bit? Uh, we're putting out. Can you... It reminds me of a story. It reminds me of a story. My my dad and I went to um, Scotland. Oh, God. It was more than a decade ago. And I took him for his 65th birthday. We were playing Presswick. And I want to say it's the ninth green that kind of overlooks the Firth a little bit. And the uh, senior open was being played at Troon at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And... I'm going to clean up the language a little bit. So we're standing on the, I believe it's a par three if that memory serves. And I'm talking to my caddy and I said, uh, 
you know, those guys over at Troon are a bunch of jerks. He's like, huh? What's, you know, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I'm like, I tried to get a tea time over there today, and they said we couldn't play. And they're like, they're playing the senior British Open over there. And I go, they don't use all the tea times. And the guy just looked at, as I picked, you know, I just started walking down the fairway. And the guy, he's just looking at the other caddy like, can you believe these effing Americans? And I, you know, like three steps in, I was like, guys, I'm just busting your balls. And like everyone lost it. We had drinks afterward. But, you know, here they are thinking, you know, here are these ignorant Americans thinking they're going to go play where they're playing the senior British Open. And they'll just take the tea times when they're done. It's very, but that happened. It happened, Roger. You could have joined the final group. There's only two playing. In yeah. There's two spaces. But to think that the Open's being played and there's just, you know, regular golfers out there just piddling around the ball. Yeah. And, and also, they wouldn't have had a, uh, you know, you know, oh, this is the Open Championship. This, you know, this, this, this is the artisans. You know, this is the working class boys, you know, getting in the way a little bit, you know, and irritating us, you know. But I should, they should be like, you know, not interfering with our golf, you know. Where they're playing like you know thirteen shots a hole, you know. Whereas do we do we know who Strath hit in the head with his golf ball? Was it one of the, you know, local players? No, no, it was just one of the one of the people that were watching. Spectator, but, okay. Yeah, but um, but he was shocked. He was shocked by by it, you know, uh, and that threw him off his stride because I think he he, he would he was sailing at that point, you know, and it, it caused him to drop a few shots, you know, which also maybe led to the. The, the thinking of, you know, because, you know, he, he was born and bred in St. Andrews and you would have always played on the 17th, even if people were putting, you know, there was none of this waiting until they're off the green. You know, it was unheard of. So so maybe maybe just in the shock of it all, that that's why he's played onto the green. But there was no penalty. They just know, said you, you, you shouldn't do it. You can't do yeah. it. But there was no a stroke penalty or, you know, any of those things. Absolutely. And also... There was no reason for the committee to meet then. And once he made his decision, the committee didn't need to meet, you know. So it, it was it was petty, you know, and um, logical, but petty. And, you know, I, I would just love to have seen his name on the, the Claret. Right. And he was, I, I think he was somewhere around 26 years of age. I mean, he was young. And he, he yeah. dies two or three years later. Um, yeah. I mean, to and, put this in perspective to the folks listening, he played in eight Open Championships and finished top five and seven of them, and I believe he came in second twice. Is that right? Yeah, it is phenomenal. Um, Doc Malcolm, you know Doc Malcolm, who wrote Osses, you know the Tom Morris uh, book, which is just—it's my all-time favorite book. Um, uh, the last book that he wrote was the Golfing Straths, and that has just come out. Um, uh, you know, any 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 time now. So I've actually got a copy in the house. Um, or in the car, but it's just um, a it, it's it's just a beautiful book about the Strath family. Anybody who wants to know more about DV Strath, you can buy it on FineGolfBooks.com. I think they're doing some pre-orders. Um, but it is just just glorious, and it's so nice to hear Doc Malcolm's voice again. You know, it's just like you know, um, it's just from beyond the grave. That you know, it was just lovely to hear because I, I just think he's a fantastic writer and. You know, there's lots of historians uh, who are very good at writing historic books that are really good reference books. Or, and but what Doc Malcolm 
is he's able to do that level of research but make it accessible you know and i love that love that about him yeah, they, you're right. There's basically two different types of history books, right? One that is a research book, and then yeah. one that is story form, much like our friend Stephen Proctor writes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But Stephen is a brilliant writer for that, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I com- compared him to Darwin for that because it just has a lovely lyrical tone and able to capture a moment, you know, in a far better way than, than the sort of uh, the the drier history books ever do, you know, so, and I, I think he, he's probably one of the best in the world at, at writing that sort of prose, you know, I think his books are brilliant. All right. So we can't end on witches or a cholera outbreak or the, you know, premature death of young Tom or Davy Strath. We've got to end on a high note. How should we wrap this up, Roger? Uh, maybe an early celebration of Rory McElroy's victory at the Oh, look at you. Huh? The Northern <laughs> Irelander coming out here. <laughs> I, I hope he wins. I hope he wins. I do. Um, I, he seems you know, to I, have I, gotten his form back. He does. He does, doesn't he? You know, and I just think, I just feels like if it, it's, it's like a tap. If we can turn on one, I think he'll get four or five. But there's some mental block at the minute to stopping him, and um, I just I would love to see him. You know, he, he's starting to. It seems he has that spring back in his step because you know when Rory's playing well, he's bouncing all the way along the links. You know, um, um, so um, so I, I hope Rory wins it. You know, I, I, I'm like the BBC. I, I'm open to other ideas <laughs> <laughs> like that. But St Andrews, it's it's played. It's been home to so many glorious Open Championships. Right, I mean, it yeah. kicks off in 1873, and and here we are in 2022 celebrating the 150th Open. There's so many memorable moments, right? There's so many a cast of characters that really just paint the canvas of golf history. It's yeah. really a glorious place, from old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris to Davy Strath and Bob Martin and Willie Park, uh, and you know. Bobby Jones and Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods. It's just remarkable, isn't it? I mean, you, you literally live in history, Roger. I uh, know, yeah, but it is wonderful, you know, and, and, uh, and Sebi as well, of course. Of know. course, absolutely. Uh, just, uh, just passion, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You almost wanted Sebi to hit a bad drive just to see what, what came next, you know? Some miracles. You know, because his, his, his imagination got fired up when he was in the most difficult of positions, you know. So put him in the middle of the ferry, he might have struggled, but, you know, underneath a tree with a brick wall in front of him, he would somehow... Right? I mean, he almost, when he was in the middle of the fairway, he'd, he'd probably have to imagine, like, okay, I'm going to have to move this around this imaginary brick wall, uh, curve it to the left, and kick it up there to 10 feet. Yeah. And, uh, easy. Yeah, right? Right. Ah, it's amazing. I, I tell you, Roger, I'm I'm so jealous that you're there all the time, let alone for the hundred and fiftieth open. Um I, I just wow. Right? And and you recently were host to my good friend Stephen Proctor was just there in town, is that correct? Honestly, we were we were like a pair of two old men dandering around the town, you know. And um but talking about the 1800s, you know, and uh, 
it was joyful, honestly, because you know I, I never get a chance to spend time with Stephen. Usually, we we can see each other, grab a coffee, and then we're off to do something else. You know, it was just lovely to spend a few hours walking around and you know uh, um, by Tom's house, and and I was telling the story about Tom's bedroom because when Mrs. Walker, Tom's great great granddaughter, showed. You know, she um, she kindly welcomed me into Tom's house. You know, just above the shop, and she said, "Would you like to see Tom's bedroom?" And I said, "Oh yeah, absolutely." And she opened the door, and I went to walk down, thinking it was the hallway. And she goes, "No, no, no! This is the bedroom." So, do you know the shop? And you have a door to the side of the shop. You know, and that's the lane. His bedroom was the width of the lane. No. So, yeah. So, um, so it was narrow. Um, but then there, there, there were, you know, they're all barely over five foot in those days. Sure, you know? sure. Um, but extremely but yeah, modest, so, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I've, I've, I've rarely, the only, some, someone's ever said bad about old Tom, that somebody accused him of acting like a tomcat at the Himalayas. You know, um, what did that mean, the, acting oh, like just, a tomcat? You know, <clears throat> Uh, um, he's overseeing it and, and the Himalayas the putting green was as much uh, uh, as, as a, a putting course for the ladies as it was for the, for the, the middle classes it, it was a, a acceptable place for the middle classes uh, could could be introduced to each other so so it was it was known as a a courting spot shall we say you know where introductions could be met, you know, but it were, you know, under the careful, watchful eye of, you know, of someone. Um, so, uh, but he was accused of being a tomcat there, just, you know, he was the one that created it and, you know, and sort of, but, but I have never heard anything bad about Tom Morris. Everyone says he was congenial, he was friendly, he could talk to anyone, you know, and he talked in a, um, he used a Scots language, so there was lots of Lots of languages which are still in use today, you know. Um, like, you know, if, if a plumber comes around to the house, invariably he'll use lots of Scots language. Like things like, uh, you can uh, means do you understand? You know, so, uh, yeah, so, um, I, so, yeah, so it's always interesting to, you know, the plumber comes around, it's like chatting to old Tom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, which is which is absolutely lovely, you know. But 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 he was still able to converse with Prince Leopold, you know, Queen Victoria's son, you know, as well as the caddy with no shoes, you know, the little boy, you know. So he, he was always seen as uh, by the caddies as one of their own who had done well, you know. And I don't think he had any errors and graces about him at all. That's amazing. So you have a new book that you're writing on Alan Robertson, uh, perhaps my favorite golfer in history. Um, yeah. When might we expect that, Roger? That's you never ask that of an author who's who's literally currently writing it, folks. Just so you know, which is why I always <laughs> ask it. Um, How's it uh, coming along? It's it's coming along really nicely, you know. Um, and it, you know, you know how it came to be on my desk. Um, the story actually may start with me prodding Bill to write the book. Uh, Oh wow! He didn't think there was enough information, and I just said, 
you'll find a way. I'm like, nobody's really, I mean, there is a book on Alan Robertson. I have it somewhere here. Uh, But, but I just say there's more to be written. I mean, there's never been a better era than we live in now. And I'm sure that will be the case in 10 years from now and 20 years now to find information. The ability to find newspaper articles is a click. You know, we don't have to travel to St. Andrews to do that. Um, You know, what we know now is as much as we've ever known. That is obviously growing day by day, but this is the time to write that story. And I'm I'm thankful Bill took that on, and unfortunately he passed, and the honor has then been passed to you to write this book. Yeah, Emma, his daughter, I, I met her at the Fairmont, you know, um, shared a cup of tea with her and her, her lovely family, and, and she had a green bag with her. Um, and so I thought I might even have it just here, but... Um, uh, and it was it was all Bill's papers, and she just said, um, "Would you consider finishing it?" And I, I said, "Yes, straight away." You know, I just um, without any thought of about who, when, why, or what. You know, um, and Bill had found some lovely stuff, lots of original material about the matches that Alan's played. You know, a lot more detail than we've ever known. Uh, so, so, and then, so he had written. I think about about thirty thousand words, you know. So, uh, so, and then I'm just basically pulling it all together. And uh, it's it's, and it's just I, amazing. I, it's, it's amazing, Roger. I'm just, I can't tell you how excited I am. And I think I don't remember it right because I'm now four years in this podcast. But I think when we had Bill on in season one, I might be misremembering, but I believe I was egging him on to write this book. <laughs> four years ago i was like write it come on i i can't remember exactly because i say that to a lot of people on the show when yeah, i think yeah. something needs to be done but to see it coming together now is just amazing to me i'm just so excited i mean i think not a lot of people know about alan robertson and yet he is the reason they're playing the 150th open I mean, he's yeah. the reason why we play the U.S. Open and the Masters and the PGA Championship. It all starts with the Open, and it all yeah. starts prior to that with the King of Clubs. Exactly. Alan Robertson, you know. Um, and it, 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 is, it is a joy to work on, you know, and that's a problem. You know, that, you know I, I nearly arrived late for, the, for, for this chat because I was working on it, you know, and I, I find it really hard. To, to, to pull myself away, you know, when, when I'm really, uh, really into it, you know. So, um, but we, we will, the Alan Robertson, the, the Robertson's family story, you know, and, and we'll, maybe we'll do a podcast now. On 100% that. we'll do a podcast on it, 100%. Um, but but the, the story goes back, um, you know, to the 1500s of Robertson ball makers in St. Andrews. So, um, but also the history of Robertsons, the Robertsons of Struan. Uh, when Alan uh, wrote his will, he left one book uh, to his brother, David, and it was called the Robertsons of Struan. And it's all the history of the Robertsons family. And we're suddenly finding that the Robertsons are these fantastic heroes. They're the heroes of Scottish history. So no wonder Alan Robertson was cock of the green. No wonder, he, uh, because he, I think he genuinely felt their blood of the greatest Scottish heroes was in his veins, you know. So he wasn't just 
you know, Alan Robertson, working class ball maker. He was Alan Robertson from the Robertson's family, you know. So, so it's so it, it is exciting, and 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 just because obviously I'm trying to find a link back to witches. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can't end without it. <laughs> yeah, was was that that his his relatives who who are you know from from in the 1600s down as as ball makers they have lived through all that witch era they would have seen perfect and you know through water trials and burning of of witches and martyrs you know but at the same time of all that history that we've talked about they're they're they're, they're shoe and ball makers you know that's what they're registered as shoes so, so, too that's I mean it makes yeah. sense leather right yeah yeah. So when Tom plays with the gutty ball in 1848 and Alan goes mental, absolutely, it's there's good reason because that's the end of the era. That the family's Robertson. heritage ends right there. And yeah. it's under his, Alan's watch. You know, I, I think Alan would have found that, you know, because it's all about persona uh, and the history of the family. You know, and suddenly it was going to end on his watch, which means he would have found almost shameful. You know, and he would try; he would do anything to try to change the, the, the story. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you figured so, out how so you're going to so end I, this? Have you figured out how you're going to end this story? You don't have to tell me, but do you know how it ends? Alan's story. Yeah. Your book specifically, I, I think on an I think on an opt- optimistic note, because you know, you wouldn't have the open championship. You know, Presswick wouldn't have had to create it if he hadn't passed away. He'd still be the champion golfer. At some point, he would have had to relinquish to Tom Morris, or to which he probably would have relinquished to Tom Morris far more so when he was ready to relinquish to Willie Park. Yeah, I who, wonder if. Do you think Alan? So. He goes through the majority of his life, at least with the the myth that he never lost a match, right? I mean, we know yeah, that he lost to old Tom Morris. Absolutely. But yeah, yeah. do you think he would have just retired from playing matches rather than to fade into, you know, an older golfer who could be beaten? I mean, it's one thing when you're, you know, cock of the green and you're the flamingo of the fairways. And um, (laughs) I made that one up, but I think it's, (laughs) he he was a colorful character that wore a lot of colors, right? Um, I mean, do you think, I I think it's hard for a a player of that nature. I mean, look at, you know, Jack Nicklaus, I, I guess, doesn't play a lot of golf anymore because he struggles to break 90. It's really hard, I assume, to to be the greatest golfer or one of the greatest golfers of all time and struggle to play the game later on. Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of that, but at the same time, you know, your pure love of golf will be just hitting a golf ball and just to get out there and play. I think Alan and Tom were very similar in, in, in some ways. Tom was certainly a, a, a quieter soul than, than Alan was. Um, but, I think Alan, you could imagine him if he'd lived to 70, 80, you know, there would have been a trophy on the wall saying champion golfer or the original champion golfer, you know, this sort of thing. So, um, and I think he would have designed more courses. He was already doing that, you know, at Carnegie and stuff, you know. So, um, 
Um, but but when when I, I finish the book and I you know I imagine, and it's the first thing to come into my head that I'll end on a positive note, because because he was the champion golfer of Scotland, and that is as good as it gets. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Roger, thank you so much for this guided golf historian's guide to St Andrews. I am sure the audience enjoyed learning about the history that surrounds the eighth wonder of the golf world, St. Andrews and the old course. Enjoy the 150th plan of the open championship. I don't know about you, but I'm sad to see this podcast on St. Andrews history end. I truly hope you enjoyed it. So many enjoyable tales from Playfair saving the town to Davy Strath, choosing to forego a playoff to win the open. If you enjoyed this podcast, I only ask that you take a moment to leave a review and a comment. I enjoy reading them, and they help other golfers decide whether this podcast is worth their time. Speaking of time, we are out of it. We are coming dangerously close to our 100th episode, and I won't lie to you. I have contemplated hanging up the mic after 100 episodes, because it's such a clean number and a feat that has been four years in the making. For you who love this show, I don't think I will, uh, but I have considered it. I enjoy making this show and sharing golf's great history with you. And of course, hearing back from you that you enjoyed the show or that you learned something new, it keeps me going. And I thank you for your enthusiasm. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. (laughs) 